John 13, beginning in verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. In 2023, a thousand people in the U.S., a thousand adults, were asked this following question in a survey. Did you yourself happen to attend church, synagogue, mosque, or a temple in the last seven days or not? Okay, so basically, did you gather at a church, a religious type of gathering, last week? A thousand people were asked that. 31% of adults said yes. Another survey was conducted in the U.S. in 2022, again, amongst adults, because it's kind of different when you're talking about teenagers, you know, did you go to church? Well, yeah, I did. I was forced to go. So talking about adults, right? So in 2022, they were asked, or they were posed this following statement, and they were said, agree or disagree with this statement. This is amongst all people in the U.S., okay? Every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. 36% agreed. 56% disagreed, 8% said they're not sure. Kind of interesting, but it gets even more interesting. Amongst Bible-believing Christians, okay, what's commonly referred to as evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, they were asked that same thing. Joining, every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. Bible-believing Christians said 68%, yeah, they should. 26% said no, and 6% said, I'm not sure. In a lot of those stats, what's the simple takeaway? This isn't a shock to you. I'm just giving you some hard facts about this general statement. What is that? Church attendance is on the decline in the U.S. Okay? There's far and far, far less of a priority amongst people and even amongst Christians that say, hey, gathering weekly with the church, as the church, it's not really that important. But in a lot of all those stats, I'm thankful that They don't describe you today, presently, because you are here for one reason or another. For some reason, you think the church is important, that gathering as the church is important. And those stats that I just told you, that might not describe you, right? Because again, you have been here today. Um, They might not describe you, but what are you going to say to the coworker who will ask you, why do you go to church? What's your elevator pitch to them? What are you going to say in one minute? Why do you go to church? The friend who says to you, I believe in God and all, but I'm not a fan of that organized religion stuff. I just, it's not my thing. Or the cousin who may say to you, I've tried the church before, but I can't do it anymore because of all the hypocrites. What are you going to say to those people who question you? Some, some of them antagonistically, but some of them sincerely and genuinely. What's up with the church? Why are you part of it? What's important about it? Why is it important to you? And before we answer that question, what we've got to do is back up and ask the more basic question. What is the church? What is the church? Have you really thought about that? Have you asked that lately? What is the church? Is it just Hillsborough Baptist Church? Is it the churches all in Crozet? Right? Obviously, you know the answer to those. But you have to think through those basic questions. What is the church, biblically speaking? So over the next um, several weeks, we're going to be unpacking the doctrine of ecclesiology. Okay, what is Ecclesiology is the doctrine or the study of, the teaching of the church. What is the church itself? And we're going to be asking a few different questions, looking at it from a few different angles. And 
let me give you a roadmap of where we're heading. Today, we're considering the nature of the church, okay? The nature of the church. What is the DNA of the church? What is its basic quality? What are some basic characteristics of the church? Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the purpose of the church. Why did Jesus institute it? Why did he create it? What is the church's role today in this world? Is it mercy ministry? Is it, you know, feeding the poor? Is it only preaching the gospel? Is it, like, what, what's the purpose of the church? And then we're also going to consider uh, the role of Israel in the church. And especially this is very relevant in today's day and age, because all of y'all are seeing the news headlines about Israel. And basically, I want to ask and hopefully answer the question, has the church replaced Israel? Okay, so if you don't know what I'm talking about in the Old Testament, as we were beginning to read about in the book Genesis with Abraham, God chose a people for himself, the Israelites. I'm going to bless you, make you prosperous and abundant, so on and so forth. We see the narrative in the Old Testament. Then we get to the New Testament. Looks like all the attention is on the church now. What happened to Israel? Has God forgotten Israel? Has he abandoned his promises to Israel? How do we make sense of all that? So that's, we're going to consider that. And then uh, towards the end of our study in the church, we're going to look at how do we order the church? How, how should the church be ordered? Right? Because as any assembly of people gets together... There has to be order, okay, religious or not. So what is God's design for orderliness in the church, um, both in terms of leadership, but also, like, what should be in a Sunday morning? Why, why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why, do, why is there a preached sermon? Now, all these kinds of things. How should the church be ordered? So that's, again, to give you a little roadmap of where we're headed. If you have any questions about any of this kind of stuff, please tell me, ask me. I'll try to ponder it, think about it, and hopefully plan on addressing it in a sermon, either directly or indirectly. So, let's go on today. The nature of the church. What is the church? What is the basic con- uh, makeup, DNA, characteristics of the church? The Greek word for church. Does anybody know that one off the top of their head? What is the Greek word for church? Ecclesia. Who said that? You got the A+. Plus. <laughs> Mr. Don, all right. Ecclesia, yes. That is the Greek word for church, okay? Ecclesia. It is found 114 times in the New Testament. All right? The strict, simple dictionary definition of that word is gathering, congregation, or assembly. Okay? What is the church? If you're just answering it from a strict dictionary definition, what is the church? It's the assembly. It's a gathering. It is a congregation. And please know, that is not an overtly religious word. Okay? It's just a, a blanket statement. It's an assembly. All right? For example... In Acts chapter 19, God, through Luke, uses that word, ecclesia, to refer on three different occasions to describe the assembly that gathered to protest Paul and his companions when they were preaching. So Luke is saying, the church is protesting you. It's just the assembly, the gathering of people. In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, and Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, ecclesia is used in reference to God's assembled people in the Old Testament. Okay, so this is my assembly in the wilderness. This is my church, again, basic definition, my gathering of my people in the wilderness. Every other time in the New Testament, the other 109 times in the New Testament, an ecclesia is used, it's used in a reference to a Christian assembly or congregation, an assembly of Christians, a gathering together of Christians. So what is the church? Let me ask you that, church. What is the church? The simple definition of it. The gathering, be more specific though, biblically speaking. What, what is the most often usage of that word? It's the gathering of who? 
of God's people. Okay? It's important. Basic things. Not rocket science, but we need to get these basic things in our heads and in our hearts. All right? The church is the assembly of God's people. Let's get a little more specific. What else can we say about the church? What are some defining qualities and characteristics of the church? Well, God Almighty is eternally wise, and as he oftentimes does, he explains eternal truths to us using metaphors and analogies. He does that all the time, and Jesus certainly did that as he, in his gospel ministry here on earth. So many stories, so many analogies and metaphors. And in the Bible, there are about 80-ish, 80 to 90 different metaphors that are used to describe the church. I don't know if you ever knew that. There are about 80 or 90 different metaphors that are used to describe the church. One scholar says and notes that uh, these different metaphors are come from a diverse origin of analogies. They're, we get them from home life, uh, from wedding customs, from the farm, from the lake, in city streets, and in the temple, from the kitchen, from the courtroom, from ancient legends, all the way to contemporary events. Some of these analogies are fleshed out quite a bit. I'm going to go through a few of those in just a moment, such as the body of Christ, family of God. And some others of them are mentioned very briefly and infrequently, such as Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. Okay? It's just very brief, very direct. And there's not one image. Right? This is important to keep in mind. There is not one image that fully encapsulates what the church is. Okay? It's not right to just say, you know, the church is only the body of Christ and ignore everything else. Or the church is only the family of God and ignore everything else. No, we need all of these images, all of these metaphors to paint the full robust picture of who we are, of what the church is. So I'm going to highlight a few of them for you. Number one, the body. What is the church? It is a body, the body of Christ. Colossians 1.18 tells us that he, Jesus Christ, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So Jesus, as the head, think about your own head. What, what does your head do? He gives your body direction, all right? Gives your body direction. Jesus gives the church its direction. We take our cues from Jesus. Romans chapter 12, this is a very important passage. If you had a file in the back of your mind. Romans 12, verses 4 to 5. Listen to this. Just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Also 1 Corinthians 12, 12, 13, and 14. So if you're thinking about, again, I'm trying to equip you here. What is the church? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Remember those numbers for you, okay? They're very important texts that describe who we are. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 14. Just as, just as a body, though one has many parts, all of its parts Form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. What are some takeaways from all of this? Let's talk about the body and Jesus as the head. Simply put, we are interdependent on one another. Okay? We need one another. As 1 Corinthians uses the language, the hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. All right? We need one another. We as a church need one another. The God has given the church different gifts, different functions. Romans 12 highlights a few of those. Some have the gift of administration. 
Some have the gift of leadership. Some have the gift of giving. Some have the gift of preaching or prophesying. Some have the gift of serving. Some have the explicit gift of encouraging. Some have the gift of showing mercy. These are just a sampling. This isn't exhaustive. Everybody has a gift. Everybody has, has been called to use that gift to serve the church. Okay? We all need one another. Number two, second analogy, the temple, the temple of God. What is the church? The church is the temple of God. 1 Corinthians three sixteen to 17. Again, this is an easy one for you to remember, right? John three sixteen. you got that. 1 Corinthians three sixteen. remember that reference. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. I've mentioned this before, but it's worth reiterating. That verse, and in, in the language, in it, when Paul is addressing the church, he's not saying you as an individual. Okay? You, John Jeffries. You, Miss Annette Cox, right? What is he saying? Y'all, right? Paul is a southerner at heart, okay? 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple, all right? That God's spirit dwells in y'all's midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. And this one is key right here. God's temple is sacred, and the y'all together are that temple. It is accurate, and it is appropriate to say, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Because we see that in 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20. Your individual body, you as an individual person, the Spirit of God does reside in you, yes. But in a unique, special way. What does Jesus say in the Gospels? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you, or there I am with them. Okay, there's something special, something that can't be fully scientifically parsed apart that happens when God's people gather together to worship him, to sing to him, to pray to him, to encourage one another, to be in his word together. Something special happens. And that is where God's temple, where God resides, where the spirit dwells. And just keep in mind, what's the temple, right? In the Old Testament, that's the physical location where God would commune, would interact with his people, where forgiveness would be administered, where um, revelation and truth was, was spoken, was in the temple. But now, in the New Testament, through the, through the work of Christ, the temple of God is not one location. Yeah, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to talk to God. The temple of God is the church. God dwells with the church. God fellowships with the church wherever the church is at. Number three, family. What is the church? The church is a family. One of the, I think one of the more bizarre things that Jesus said is in Matthew 12, 49 to 50. Matthew 12, 49 to 50. What does Jesus say? Pointing to his disciples. Some people get mad about pointing, right? I, don't, I get offended when people point at me. Well, look at there. Jesus pointed at people. Right? Pointing to his disciples. He said, here, and who are his disciples? Well, you know, John, James, Andrew, so on, Peter, so on and so forth. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Very, like, what on earth is he saying there? These are not his literal blood relatives, all right? But he's saying, if you do the will of the Father, you are my mother, you are my sister, you are my brother. What is he saying? 
those who follow the will of God, those who listen to God's word, there is a close familial connection with the Father and with Christ himself. As it's further fleshed out as the New Testament progresses, 2 Corinthians 6.18, what does God say? I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In Ephesians chapter 1, how does this all come about? What does this mean? God is the Father. Christ is the Son. Because of all that Christ did on the cross through his death, his resurrection, Christians have been adopted into the family of God. Okay? So if God were to have a last name, all of us would have that last name. Okay? We are all adopted into God's family. So now, we are all brothers and sisters. Right? Christ is our ultimate, older, perfect brother. And all of us are brothers and sisters with one another. First John 4.21 He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. First Timothy 5.1-2 Paul fleshes this out practically for young Timothy. What does he say? Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat him like a father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity, right? We are brothers and sisters with one another, and we are called to treat one another as such. And that is treat them well, right? I don't know what your background is with your brothers or sisters, right? You're fighting and whatnot. It's not what it means. Treat with love, with grace, with forgiveness, so on and so forth. And I find it fascinating that a few popular movies in today's world, right? Fast and Furious, The Incredibles, Elf, Christmas movie, Lilo and Stitch, these different movies, one of the underlying themes in all of them is the importance of blood family, right? I'll do anything for my family. Nobody touches my family. I'm going to fight for my family. I believe in my family. I love my family, so on and so forth. That's a good message, right? They don't make a whole lot of movies with that central theme anymore. There are still some here and there in the culture, and that's a good message, right? Your blood family is very important, but as Christians, that same quality, that same commitment, that same fervor ought to describe you and I. The same commitment you have to your blood family, whether or not they're Christian or not, it should describe your commitment to the church with other Christians even more so. Okay? Ontologically speaking, you are closer to your Christian brother or sister than you are to your literal sister or brother who may not be a Christian. That does not mean your literal family is unimportant or, right? Of course not. But ontologically speaking, we have a deeper connection with one another. I have a deeper connection with my brother and sister in Cameroon, who is a true Christian, than I do with a fellow Virginian or a fellow U.S. citizen who is not a Christian, okay? The blood of Christ now in, I don't want to sound too mystical, but not, right? The blood of Christ runs through all of us in a sense in that, his justification, his sanctification, his atoning work is over us, and it unites us all together, okay? We are one body, one temple, one family. Treat them as such. But there's also a second way, or, yeah, second way, and this is number four, the bride. So it's family, what is the church? It's the family of God. There's a second type of family relation, that is husband and wife, right? The bride and the groom. See that in Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church, 
without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Verse 32. What is the church? The church is the bride of Christ. Okay? What is the church? It's the bride of Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? Especially, it might seem kind of weird for men to think about that, right? Men are the bride of Christ. What does that mean? What is marriage? Think about it earthly. Begin here, expand upward. What is marriage? It's when two, what? Become one flesh. Okay? Two distinct things become one flesh. They are united together. It's not a one-to-one correlation, right? Marriage is a picture of the ultimate reality. What What is our marriage with God then? What does it mean that we are the bride of Christ? We are intimately united with Christ. We are one with Christ. So now, the way the Father treats Jesus, which is with love, with perfection, um, showering him with you know, gifts and glory and all this kind of stuff, the way the Father treats and views Jesus is the very same way the Father treats the church. He deems us as perfect. He sees us as perfect. He treats us as his beloved because we are one with Christ. We are in Christ. Everything that describes Jesus now, his beauty, his splendor, his glory, his purity, his perfection, all of that is now shared with us and describes us. But if you look around and you're honest with yourself and with the world, the church does not look like that. Okay? That's where that popular um, you know, rebuke comes in. The church is full of hypocrites. Or the church is corrupt. The church is you know, marred, it's sinful, so on and so forth. How do we reconcile that? Is the church perfect? Kind of a trick question for you. Yes and no, okay? Depends on what context, all right? When God looks at the church, he doesn't see us and treat, he doesn't treat us, this is important. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't treat us as though we're sinful. He treats us as if we're perfect. Not because we are inherently, but because Christ's work covers over us, okay? So in the ultimate sense, in the sense of justification, our standing before God, we are perfect. But practically speaking, right, in your own personal life, we are far from perfect, right? But what is Christ's heart? This is important to keep in mind with Ephesians 5. What is Jesus' aim with the church? What is he striving to do? What is he actively doing for the church? Look at Ephesians 5 again if you're not there. What is he actively doing for the church? Okay, we're going to heaven. Good. We're perfect before the Lord in heaven. Good. What is he doing here on earth for the church? Verse 26 and 27. What is he doing? Jesus is making her holy, cleansing her, by the washing with water through the word. It's an active cleansing, an active purifying, an active salvation, right? In a sense, you can say, I was saved when I was 13 years old. But in another sense, you can say, I am being saved. God is killing the sin in my heart day by day, little by little. And that's, and it, yes, the church is imperfect. The church is filled with raw, flawed, broken, messed up people. But Jesus doesn't give up on the church. This is so important. Jesus does not give up on the church. And why should we? 
are we better than Jesus? No. Jesus doesn't give on the church, neither should we. Last analogy, the vine. What is the church? It is the vine of God. Or rather, the branches, right? Jesus is the vine. But John 15, 5. I am the vine, Jesus speaking, you are the branches. What is the church? We are branches, okay? I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Then the New Testament, God makes several other agricultural analogies about the church. So, for example, a fig tree and the olive tree, that's in Romans um, chapter 11. Sowing and reaping, planting seeds in God's field, uh, watering, so on and so forth. But what's a simple takeaway? Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Simple takeaway is this. The church is alive, it's active, it's growing, and it spreads. Okay? And God's intention is for us to bear the fruit of godliness. So those are just a few of the the more popular, the more fleshed out analogies of what is the church. But I want to lastly ask and answer one last question. Who is a part of the church? Okay. You may have heard all of this descriptions about you know, the church is where God fellowships and interacts with you. God is, uh, the church is the family of God and th- there's that intimate connection and friendship and potential fellowship that's available to one another. I want to be a part of the church, but it's important to ask, who is a part of the church? Who is a part of the church? If you've come here at Hillsborough on Sunday morning, does that mean that you are a part of the family of God? Two components to keep in mind to answer that question. Firstly, the church is invisible and it's visible. Okay? Have you ever heard that before? The church is invisible and it's visible. What do I mean? Well, it's invisible in that you and I, we cannot see every Christian everywhere at one time, nor can we see the depths of someone's heart. Okay? It's impossible for us to truly with the authority of God to say, this person is a Christian. Okay, only God has that authority. Only he can make that call. Only he can see the hearts of men. What we, you and I can see are the visible fruits, right? We can see, does somebody profess to be a Christian? Are they striving to live a godly life? So on and so forth. But it's in, the church is invisible in that we can't fully see or fully know the entire scope of the church everywhere, Okay? What do I mean the church is visible? Well, it's plainly obvious. Just open your eyes and look around you, even today physically. Okay? The church is visible in that, yes, people are gathering Sunday mornings and throughout the week. Okay? You can look around and see one another in this literal building, Hillsborough Baptist Church. The church is visible. You can see. All right? But ultimately, at the end of the day, 2 Timothy 2.19 is true. Only the Lord knows those who are his. And it's, it would be absurd for us to say everybody who walks into a church on Sunday morning is a true Christian. No. There are plenty of people, um, and it's a good thing, right, who are non-Christians, who are sitting in the pews, they're hearing the word of God, okay? It's good for them to be able to hear and be exposed to the truth. But either way, right, th- this is important to keep in mind. Whether you are a Christian or whether or not you're exploring Christianity, we all have the same need to know Jesus more, to know his word more, to love and obey him more. So here's a question for you. Are there any unbelievers in the church? 
Are there any unbelievers in the church? It's kind of a trick question. Okay? Yes and no. What do I mean by that? In the invisible, heavenly, ultimate church, no. What is the church? Ultimately, it's the assembling of God's people, those who are truly God's people. Okay? So the invisible church, there are no unbelievers. It's only Christians. Yet, in the visible church, in the local churches around the world, are there unbelievers present? Okay, yes. 99.99999% sure, yes. There are unbelievers present. All right? It's just kind of important to keep in mind if you're conversing with someone. All right? The second thing to keep in mind, the church is global and local. This is very correlated, but the church is global and local. Oftentimes you might hear people, you know, say, you know, I'm a Christian, but... I'm not a part of any local church. I'm a part of the Big C Church. That's a, a lot of people use that. Big C Church, referring to the church around the world, the church in general. But let me simply ask you, is it okay to say, I love the church in general, but fail to prioritize gathering locally? Is it okay to do that? Phrase the question differently. If you're married, how wrong would it be to say, I like the concept of marriage in general, but you fail to spend quality time with your own literal spouse. How absurd is that? I like marriage in general. I like the church in general, the big C church. But the local church, eh, not really my thing. Too, too messy, too... You see how absurd that is? Right? In the New Testament, yes, the word church is used about all Christians everywhere. Okay? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church, the church everywhere. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, Paul says, I persecuted the church of God. But it gets more specific, and more often, that word, ecclesia, it's used to refer to a church in a region. Acts 9, 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. It gets more specific. It's about a church in a city. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to an entire city. And it gets even more specific in the New Testament. Romans 16, 5, greet the church that meets in your home. Okay. Far and above and beyond, the overwhelming usage of the word church is not about in general. It's about local specific context where it's manifested. Let's wrap it up. Church, what did Jesus say in John 13, 35? End where we began. What is the church's most powerful sermon? By this, the world will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. How are you going to love one another in general? You can't. It's impossible. But you can love the person literally sitting next to you today. You can love the literal person sitting in front of you and behind you. Okay? That is where love is expressed. There are over 50 commands in the New Testament, one another commands. Pray for one another, encourage for one another, sing to one another. How are you going to obey that in general? You can't. You have to have a specific local context. Yes, I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad you're at Hillsboro. But it's not about Hillsboro, right? It's about worshiping God somewhere, period, locally. Worship God locally with his people. Because by this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another.
as we conclude, I want to call Mr. Dave up. And, you know, we're going to be specific here, right? Talking about there's nothing much good of doing stuff in general. Let's be specific. What does it mean to love one another? It's a big command, lots of different avenues as to what that looks like, what that means. But today, as thankful um, was put on Mr. Dave's heart, and by extension should be on all of our hearts, um, I'll, I'll let you take it away.